Hello and welcome to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Efraim Martinez. I am a principal in search of wisdom and I have found productivity to be a great tool for success. Today I have the great and distinguished honor of interviewing Elijah Carbajal, who is a Title I reading interventionist, an author and podcaster from Arborquerque, New Mexico. Elijah Carbajal, who are you? Hey, well, thank you, Dr. Afrian. I appreciate this opportunity. And man, thank you so much for just having me. Um, I, you know, you were saying that by the end of this, I would, I would be hoping, like, I would be saying, I'm so glad I did this, but I'm already happy that I'm here. So, awesome. um, yeah, so uh, just again, thank you for having me. I'm, uh, like you said, a Title I reading interventionist. But before that, I did uh, fourth grade and third grade for about eight years, uh, mostly fourth grade, but did a couple years of third grade as well. Um, lived in New Mexico my whole life. Uh, so I'm proud to say that, you know, proud New Mexican and, you know, happy to be working in the Albuquerque Public School District, the biggest district here in, in the state. Um, my wife, Tracy, I know you met her at the Teach Better conference last year. Um, she's also a, a teacher here in the district, uh, working as an art teacher at a middle school. And so, uh, we'll, I'm sure I'll be talking a little bit about her as I was, as I was, uh, thinking about what I wanted to say today, but, um, yeah, I'm an author of a book, like you mentioned, um, the book is called a place they love, uh, that released, uh, in October of 2022. So it's still fairly new and, you know, having a lot of buzz still and, and, a lot of excitement about that and i'm just happy to get my message out and the you know the heart of the book really is is what i'm really excited about to get into the hands of educators and you know principals like yourself and teachers and educational assistants really whoever works with students um, is welcome to pick up a copy and read it for themselves and uh you also mentioned i i host the podcast which is true i host the shut up and teach podcast which uh like like your podcast here, um, just became part of the Teach Better Podcast Network. So I'm a proud member of that network uh, alongside you, uh, Dr. Fran. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I, I, I was able to observe you and your wife interact, and I can tell there's a lot of love there. Thank you so much, Elijah. So um, <coughs> Elijah, can you please uh, walk us through your professional trajectory up to this point? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so my my career, my, my trajectory is kind of interesting because I um, came from a homeschool family. I have a family. There was a family of six of us. So I have five, I have four brothers, um, one baby sister um, who is no longer a baby. She's got babies of her own now. And um, but my mom was a special education teacher. Um, you know, prior to homeschooling us. So she had that educational background and know-how and the skill and all that to, to teach us. So my mom felt like it was a calling for her. She definitely would say, don't homeschool if you're not called to do it. But she definitely was called to do it. And she did a fantastic job. But that meant for me, I didn't step foot into a public school classroom until my first day of student teaching. So, I mean, talk about culture shock, you know, just... Yes in a room with, you know, I think there was like 22 sixth graders, sixth grade elementary there in Belen, New Mexico. And, uh, you know, just overwhelmed, just like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. But 
I remember telling someone at the end of my first week, I think I can do this though. Like, I, I think I can figure this out. Like, and I think this is for me. Um, there've definitely been times throughout my career where I'm like, maybe I, maybe this is not for me, but I always come back around and, you know, kind of, you know, come back to my purpose and all that. Um, so it started off, you know, super humble beginnings, you know, not, not having any educational, you know, public education experience, you know, no, known about things like field trips and buses and cafeteria and, you know, re all that stuff, you know, so just school culture, school language, all those things was so brand new to me. And so I had a lot of learning to do. I had a lot of learning to do. And I'm thankful for my mentors that I've had. Miss um, Adrian Jaramillo uh, was my, you know, my mentor teacher during my first year of student teaching. And then uh, a woman by the name of Heidi Dudley, she's now a principal here in Albuquerque, but she was a fantastic support to me um, in helping me take over a classroom. And then, of course, my wife, Tracy, has been a big mentor and a big support to me along the way, um, just helping me grow and learn and, you know, express myself and, you know, teach with passion and all that. And so I've I've grown a lot. You know, I've, I've grown a lot as an educator, but it's not because of myself. You know, it's because of the people that I surround myself with. And, um, you know, I I think I've heard, you know, I've, we've heard people say, you know, you shouldn't be the smartest one in the room or try not to be the smartest one in the room. And that's the way I kind of look at it. I look for the people who I know can build me up and, and the folks that I know that can help me help this trajectory continue. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And so um, there's just been a lot to learn along the way, like every, like every job, like every career, there's a lot to learn. And, and, you know, we make mistakes along the way. Um, I've made my fair share of them, you know, both, you know, dealing with students, dealing with fellow teachers, you know, um, meeting, you know, there's just everything, you know, that teachers kind of go through and educators have to deal with. But um, through all of that, you know, we reflect and we learn and, and we, we look back and we ask ourselves, what can I learn from this moment? How did this benefit my students? So on. And, um, you know, we just take it one day at a time, you know, and so I, I wouldn't say that I've arrived at any level at all, not at all. You know, I'm still learning. If anything, I'm if anything, I'm still learning. Beautiful. Uh, Elijah, do you remember the moment that you said, that's what I want to be. I want to be a teacher. Can you walk us through that? So there were two moments, actually, um, that I want to, that you bring up that I'd like to discuss. So the first is when I was, came when I was 14 years old. I knew I wanted to be a teacher when I was 14 years old, but I knew I wanted to be a music teacher. I didn't want to be a gen ed teacher or reading intervention. Um, you can see in the background, I've got guitars hanging on there. You know, I've got a piano in front of me. I've got other instruments that you can't see. And so I'm very musical. I very creative in that capacity. And, um, I just, that was the first time that I felt super passionate about something that I felt like I can, I can take this and, and give it to somebody else. And so I thought, what better way than to teach? And so I knew at 14 that I was going to go into education, knew that for sure. But my plan was to teach uh, music education, not, not general education. And um, was going through college on course and all that. And then about a year and a half, maybe two years before graduation, 
plans changed, you know, talked to, you know, you know, my, you know, my guidance counselors there and they were saying, you know, things like, you know, music isn't bad. There's a need for elementary male teachers. You know, there is a need for music teachers, but just something to consider. And so I, you know, gave it a lot of thought and, and realized, you know, if I, if I'm teaching, I'm teaching, that's all I care about. As long as I can instill something and give back to kids and families and all that. And so the decision was made kind of not on spur of the moment, but after some thought, of course, reflection and decided I'm going to change my major and go into general education, um, which was a great choice. You know, not that music would have been a bad choice, but it's gotten me where I'm at, where I am today. And, you know, sometimes in the moment we can't always understand like why things are happening or why we're changing, you know, but we look back and hindsight is always 2020. And so we can see how everything kind of fell into place. So um, you mentioned there, uh, I, I, sorry, I mentioned there was one more time where I was yeah. like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a teacher. Um, it was actually, I was already teaching, <laughs> believe it or not. I was already teaching. I taught four years and, um, but my plan up to this point was not to stay in teaching. You know, I'd gotten into Ooh. it, felt like I could do it, but then there was a point where I thought, how can I make another impact in a different way? And so I was look, exploring different ideas. And so there was a the thought about going in to get my social work degree and license and, um, you know, was kind of set up for that. And then there was a, there was a personal event in my life, um, you know, that, that kind of shook me a little bit and shook up things. And it made me reflect again and think, okay, what, what is it that I really truly am going to do? Is it, you know, what is it that I'm going to do? And, you know, I just, I talked a lot with, family with friends um mentors you know and all that and the you know eventually i came to the conclusion that you know it's not time you know it's it's not the right time to make a switch and so i told myself if i'm gonna if i'm not switching careers and if i'm gonna stay in teaching i've got to do this thing for real not that i wasn't but i was like i've got to step it up like things like i want things to be different for me i want things to be different for my students like i want better results and so that was kind of that second moment of like, I'm going to be a teacher, you know, it was kind of like a reawakening of like that, like come back to your purpose and all that of like, I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to step up my game. I'm going to do it, you know, do it a hundred percent. I like that because uh, in life, um, uh, especially when you are young, you think that you just have one trajectory and, mm -hmm. um, Uh, we're always questioning ourselves. Am I doing the right thing? Am I not? I wonder, Elijah, was becoming a teacher um, perhaps a product of you desiring to be in a school when you were being homeschooled? Um, not necessarily, but I think it does have to do with the fact that I was homeschooled. So, um, you know, sitting outside, you know, sitting around the kitchen table or, you know, dining room table, wherever we're at in the room, doing our homework, you know, and doing our schoolwork and, you know, looking out the door and, you know, at 7:30, buses are driving by, picking up kids, going off to school, 3:30 rolls around, buses are driving by, dropping kids off. And so this thought would often occur to me, what's it like to ride the bus? <laughs> what's it like to ride the bus? What's it like? But it was never like a, I want to be there. It was, it was more of a, I'm just sort of curious about that. Mm but I appreciate what I have. Now, I, my mom is definitely one of my biggest inspirations. 
my mom as a, as a teacher, as a person is one of my biggest inspirations and love her to death and love, you know, the sacrifices she made and the dedication and time she put into raising us and to also teaching us as well, you know, not just bringing kids up and making sure they're, you know, Maslow's needs are met, but also their academic needs are met as well. That's, that's huge. And so it's not something I ever take for granted or, you know, I, I appreciate that. So I think homeschooling kind of in a way sort of did drive me into education. Um, but more specifically, I, I'd say my mom had a big hand in hand in that. Also my grandparents, I had grandparents who were, who were teachers and an uncle that was a teacher. So it, I don't want to say runs in the family, but, you know, they're educators in the family. And so I had those models to kind of look up to and, and hear stories about the, you know, their, their teaching careers and all that. So it, there was encouragement along the way, for sure. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Elijah. So liking back to the future, if you could go back in time to any of the positions you have held, why would the Elijah of today tell the Elijah of then? Wow. Um, there's a lot that I would want to tell old Elijah. Um, I think it start, I think a start is I would go back to certain points in my career and tell myself not to forget my purpose. And I don't, I don't talk about why's I know that's a big common one. It's like, and I'm not knocking anybody who's like, remember your why, but for me, purpose, that word just hits differently for me. And so I remember, you know, these moments where I, where I probably lost sight of my purpose and it just became routine, right? Just became show up, do your thing, leave, show up, do your thing, leave. And I, and I look back and I go, man, like I did, I, I kind of lost sight of what I was doing there, you know, and it wasn't for a long time. It wasn't like full, you know, all these years and stuff. It's just little moments where, you know, I wish I could go back in time to some of these moments and say, don't forget your purpose. You're right regardless of your position, Elijah, you can still fulfill your purpose. And that's another thing I would probably go back and tell myself, you know, um, I made a change uh, last year, uh, middle of the year, that was kind of a kind of a tough decision to make and took a while for me to come to and, but eventually, you know, it, it was the right choice and the, the right timing and all that. And so but I had to, I, I think if I could go back to that moment, I would tell myself, you're, you're transitioning, your position is changing, Elijah, but your purpose hasn't. Awesome. Deeply profound. I appreciate that. Elijah, as you know, uh, also as an author, uh, reading books is such a luxury. If you will have to gift two books, one fiction and one nonfiction, which one will those be and why? Okay. Um, am I gifting these to an, like another teacher or to a student or whoever, whoever you decide? Okay. Okay. This is your show. <laughs> so I did gift a book actually recently and I'll go with the nonfiction or, uh, the fiction first actually. Um, so I gifted a book to our custodian who was telling me, he, you know, we were talking got on this topic about books and he was saying, Oh, one of my favorite books is Bud, not Buddy. Um, he mentioned the, you know, the Watsons go to Birmingham and he said, I love those, those like classic literature books. And I said, I said, come inside really quick, come to my classroom. And I gifted him a copy of the giver by Lois Lowry. And, um, 
that book is one that I stumbled upon by accident. Again, if I hadn't gone into teaching, I probably would have never heard about it. But I was, you know, I was in the sixth grade elementary class and they were reading this as a novel study. And my teacher said, here, take your copy home. We're going to finish by the time, you know, by next week. So take it and finish it for, for yourself. And I read the book in one day. That's probably one of the only books I can think of that I've read in one day that I sat down cover to cover and read it in one day and was just so drawn in and had questions at the end and was confused and just like wanting more and then, but also satisfied. And um, so it's, it's become one of my favorite books. And then I found out there's this whole quartet, there's three more books that follow it. So I picked those up. I've read that whole series with my students before a couple of times and you know, the kids have just fallen in love with those characters and to the point where, you know, at the end of that, there was there's this girl that's like, I'm I'm really happy, like for the end, but I'm kind of sad that the whole story is over. And I said, well, that's those that's the sign of a good book. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm going to use the words of my students. I, I would gift the giver because it's one of those books that you will be sad when it ends, but you'll be happy for the resolution. So, um that's that one there. Now, as far as nonfiction, gosh, man, I've been reading a lot lately, um, stuff about music. And so that's kind of been on my mind recently. I've read, um, I'm going to rattle off a few of them, but I'll pick one to gift away if I was going to gift them away. But um, there's one called Music is History by Questlove. That's a, I mean, just phenomenal book about how music can help us understand history better and, and timelines and all that. Um, I just read um, Not Afraid, which is the evolution of Eminem, picking up his life, picking up on his life right after the Encore album and moving forward from there. And just, you know, he gets a bad rap, you know, pun intended. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he gets a bad rap sometimes as, you know, being this villain, this, as he says, the criminal and all that. But, when you dive into it, you realize you get to see his the human side of of Marshall Mathers and you get to see, you know, who he is as an individual and his struggles with addiction and, you know, overcoming that and, you know, bouncing back in his career, you know, after being out for years. And so it, it I would gosh, there's so many books, but that's that's been the one most recently. And like Picasso says, my most recent one is always my favorite. So um i i'm gonna go with that one the evolution of eminem and just because like for anyone who's musical you're gonna love it for anyone who's big into like those comeback stories you know the evolution you know the deep processes of you know the process of evolution and all that they're gonna they're gonna love this book as well um there's a one more that i did read that that was dave Grohl's uh memoir i think it's called the storyteller and it's his kind of like his memoir, Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters and, you know, Nirvana. Phenomenal book. He's a great storyteller. If you can listen to it on Audible, do so because he reads it himself and it's just phenomenal. Cool. Awesome recommendations. I appreciate it, Elijah. Uh, let's give some uh, recognition to the Teach Better Network. Mm -hmm. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, Elijah, let's talk about who is or who are 
your biggest influences? My biggest influences. Well, um, to start, I would say definitely my my wife, Tracy. Um, absolutely. She um, when I moved, I had moved from Albuquerque to Aztec, New Mexico, and she kind of became that mentor that I didn't know I needed. Um, you know, we weren't weren't together or anything at the time. We were just friends. She was the art teacher at the school I was I was at. I was teaching fourth grade. But she really helped me learn the culture of the school. She helped, you know, help me integrate, you know, and get, you know, involved in stuff. And she helped me understand, you know, really what it kind of means to teach like a pirate. You know, she was the first person to introduce me to that that idea of like teach like a pirate. And uh, but I, we also had some common interests. So we both we both read Ron Clark's book, you know, the end of molasses classes. So we had so we had a lot in common. And she just kind of helped me like get there you know she kind of helped I was like I kind of look at it as like I was like leaning over the edge looking and she just kind of went over and like pushed me over and so but it was the push that I needed and so she to this day is still one of my my favorite and she is my favorite person but she's one of my biggest inspirations to this day we still in fact we were talking the other day you know it was uh not last night but Thursday night the night before and uh she you know, we were just having this conversation about our day, you know, our, you know, things we were learning, things we want to try next week, things we want to try in the future. And we just had this thought of like, we just had this moment of like, we really need these moments, don't we? Like to sit and talk and debrief and like plan with each other. And, and so those moments to us are special and they're important, you know, and we, we don't like to miss those moments. So um, definitely, definitely Tracy Taylor. Um, there's a teacher I work with uh, now. I actually graduated with her in college. And so we ended up, whatever it is, six, seven years later, ended up at the same school. Um, but her name is Deanna Barella. And she's a you know phenomenal educator. She was a classroom teacher for, I think, nine years, eight years. And then now she's working as a transformational coach at our school and doing a great job with that. And, um, you know, moving to that school and, you know, working with her, has been a great experience, you know, obviously working with someone, you know, from college is kind of, kind of a cool experience, but you know, when you top it off with her being a great educator, doing what's best for kids and for teachers and all that, it just, you know, just makes it better. And, you know, inspires me to be better directly at my school for, for my students. So um, those are some folks there. Uh, my PLN, there's way too many to mention, but my folks on, you know, folks on Twitter, on, you know, the Facebook you know, the, on Facebook and Instagram, of course you just, we just heard from the teach better team, you know, the podcast network and all that. So I'm just super thankful for everyone in my corner, you know? Beautiful. Can we go back for those that don't know, can you tell us what it is to teach like a pirate? Yeah. So teach like a pirate is a book written by Dave Burgess. Uh, now, with Dave Burgess Consulting, and uh, we're huge fans of Dave Burgess in my household. You know, we we love Dave Burgess, and we love, you know, the publishing company and some of the work that's come out of there, including, you know, things like, you know, Teach Better and, uh, you know, Kids Deserve It. So, uh, but Teach Like a Pirate, you know, if I'm going to try to remember all of them, you know, so the pirate is an acronym. So P stands for passion. I stands for immersion. R stands for rapport, 
Let's see where am I at? P I R A. Ask and analyze. T transform. And E enthusiasm. So teaching like a pirate means that you incorporate those aspects into your lesson and into your instruction and really like just making the lessons engaging. That's the big thing that I took away from that is like lessons don't have to be dry and boring. Like there's a way to make every lesson kind of fun, even if it's not over the top, you know, the big dog and pony show, you know, one of the hooks that Dave Burgess, rec you know, recommends is like dressing up. So I dress up a lot. I dress up like the other day I was cat in the hat. You know, I've been, you know, an astronaut. I've been a pirate. You know, I've been all these different, different characters. But even if it's not over the top like that, even if it's just adding like, hey, I'm going to add music, this music element to the lesson. Or I'm going to change instead of having them do a worksheet to show their work, I'm going to have them make a painting. You know, it's just some kind of different hook to mix it up and to make it more engaging and exciting. That was that was my big takeaway with that book. And so it wasn't like yes, you see Elijah dressed up and you see all those things, but there's a lot that happens on a daily basis that a lot of folks don't see that comes out of that book. And so I I recommend that's one of my top recommendations to anyone who's, you know, looking to better their practice, looking to spark engagement um build rapport with your kids. You know, I'm look. you know, that's one of my first go-tos is go check out teach like a pirate by Dave Burgess and, you know, see what it's all about. And then there's the pirate series, of course, which, you know, there's things like run like a pirate, um, tech, like a pirate balance, like a pirate, um, the leading series that, that Dave Burgess consulting has. So, um, and I'm promised we're not paid by Dave Burgess to say all this, you know, but we just, we just believe in it that much. So, yes. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Okay, so all of us at some point believe that we're not good enough, that we're not going to be able to do that. That's not for people like us. And psychologists call this imposter syndrome. How do you address, address imposter syndrome? So... So I, I, I hit imposter syndrome when I wrote the book. When I was writing my book, A Place They Love, Um, and there's still moments where I'm like, am I, was that, did I really do that? But like in the writing, it was like, should I really be doing this? Like I'm the kid who doesn't have like the public school background, right? I'm the homeschool kid from New Mexico. Like everybody forgets that New Mexico is a state, believe it or not. Like I remember I, for true story was at Disneyland and we were talking in line because you in line for magic mountain it's like two hours <laughs> yes. so you're talking with these people you know strike up conversation where are you from oh we're from new mexico and i kid you not this guy looked at us and he said well i've always wanted to go to tijuana how close is that to new mexico <laughs> oh and we said i was 14 at the time i said no new mexico usa like we're part of the same country we're in right now <laughs> we didn't have to cross the border to get here so um but every you know it's like Sometimes that hits me like you're just that kid from New Mexico. Like people think you live in another country, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's how far off the grid. That's how far off of people's radar you are sometimes. And so, you know, there's that that mindset came a lot of just like, am I like, I don't know, like and I, I had to lean on my inspirations during that time with like Tracy, of course, being my wife right there in the moment could say, trust your process trust your process. Like you've gone through the process of, of, you know, writing out chapters and outlines and 
putting thought into which examples you want to use, which research you want to use to back it up. You've gone through your process, trust your process. And so I think that's something that I've benefited from, from her saying that of trust your process, because when I doubt myself, when I doubt who I am, I can lean back on what I do, right? I can lean back on, this is my process of, of, of evolving, of learning, of applying. And so if I trust that process, I know that I'm going to continue to grow. But if I just get stuck in my head of like, it's me, like, it's just like, that's where I bought, that's where I get bogged down. So trusting in my process of, you know, how I do things, how I, how I evolve, how I reflect, how I apply, and those sorts of things have really helped me overcome imposter syndrome, especially when I was writing the book. You know, I mean, that moment hits you where it's like everyone's going to read this and they're going to realize just how fake you are, or just how not cool or you're not legit or whatever the case, whatever word comes to mind. And um, but Tracy, you know, really helped me through that. You know, there were a lot of folks in my corner that just supported me along the way. The folks at Edumatch, who I'm published with, uh, Sarah Thomas and Mandy Froelich were super helpful um, all along the way. And, you know, so just... I think overcoming imposter syndrome means you got to get out of your head. You know, you got to get out of your head. For me, I trust the process and I trust the people around me. Beautiful. You know, let's talk about your book. Can you tell us uh, uh, what is the book about? What is the birth of you saying, hmm, I'm going to write a book? Uh, <laughs> and what were your lessons learned? So I decided I wanted to write a book after I started blogging. Um, I went to Teach Better 2019, felt really inspired to start reflecting on my own practice. And so I took up blogging to do that. And so I started a little blog and it was just short. You know, I remember uh, Medium was the site that I used and it says like, this is about a two minute read or a five minute read or seven minutes or whatever. And I think the longest one I had was honestly like five minutes. They weren't lengthy reads. They were just short little snippets, little reflections. And, you know, but I kind of noticed this theme running through them of like, let's make school fun. Let's make school engaging. Let's make school, you know, somewhere where that kids love to be and that they're excited to come to. And that just kept popping up over and over and over and over and over again in all these blogs. And so I, you know, kind of thought about it. You know, I, I thought if I could compile them and put them together as a collection, like a book, like that might be kind of cool. And, uh, you know, felt the encouragement from family, from my wife, from other educators in my PLN that I reached out to with the idea of. And uh, so I said, okay, let's, let's try it, you know, and, you know, pitched to some publishing companies, Edumatch uh, Publishing picked it up, which I'm very thankful for because working with them was just a phenomenal experience. And uh, the Dr. Sarah Thomas and Mandy Froelich are just so helpful and supportive and encouraging all along the way. Um, so yeah, sitting down to write it, you know, just compiled what I needed, obviously tweaked some stuff, added some new things, took stuff out, you know, the whole editing process um, became really fun to me. You know, it wasn't at first, but it became fun to me. And um, I appreciated that that part of the, of the whole writing process. Um, but the, t the title, a place they love, that was, that was just, it was that phrase I think popped up in one of my, one of my blogs is like school should be a place that kids love. And so that's where the phrase came from of 
we need to make school a place that kids love. And that's the theme of the book. So really encouraging teachers to be engaged themselves, not just engaged students, but them, the teachers to be engaged, um, to build positive relationships, um, celebrating kids for, you know, outside the school, even if you can't go to their outside event, but like, how can you make a way to celebrate that inside the classroom? So they're still recognized. Um, what do kids need to hear? Things like, thank you. Hello. It's good to see you. I'm sorry. Like when was the last time teachers apologized to students? Right. So, you know, it's, it's really the book centers on making school a place that kids love, which in fact impacts school culture. So the full title of the book is A Place They Love, Creating a Healthy School Culture and Positively Impacting Students. So by doing that, by, I, I wrote directly to the teachers because I knew they're the ones that work firsthand with the students. There's a, there's a single chapter in there for specifically for administrators and, and administration, but the, you know, the, anyone who's working directly with students, principals, teachers, EAs, whoever, even substitute teachers could pick this up and, and I think really benefit from it um, because it really speaks to the heart of, of, of the message. The message really shines in this book about let's make school a place that kids love to be at. You know, let's make sure that they love it. Let's make sure that they're safe here. Let's make sure that they're excited to come to school, right? Dave Burgess and Teach Like a Pirate said, asked the question, if you had to sell tickets to your show, would you be teaching in an empty classroom? You know, and so that's kind of that that hits hard for me when I think about making school a place that they love. Like, yeah, do kids actually want to be here? Like if they if they had the option, would they be here? And so I really strive in my, you know, in my school and in my position to really make sure that the teachers are excited to be there, that the you know students that I service and the students that I don't service are also excited and, you know, engaged and feel safe and feel like it's a place that they love and the book has lots and lots of tips little tidbits and nuggets of truth and wisdom in there to uh, help educators reach that goal beautiful i am so curious what is the advice i'm always trying to improve my my art as a school administrator um, what is the advice do you have for principals So in that chapter, it's called Dear Administration, and I wrote it kind of like a letter format. Like, you know, it's even signed at the bottom, sincerely a teacher who loves you. But, you know, in there, there's some things that I encourage to stop doing if you're doing those things. So there's one thing in particular, like stop taking away recess. That's one thing I, I'm kind of anti against. Like, I'm sorry, it's a 10 minute block, like even if it needs to be structured. You know, at our school, we, you know, for kids that have had, you know, behavior issues or behavior problems, they might get a structured recess where they're still getting some kind of recess, but it's, you know, it's not necessarily looking like everybody out on the playground, but they still get some kind of recess, right? So I'm very much against do not take away recess as much as we can incorporate, you know, recess and movement into the day, you know, things like that. But there's a lot that I encourage administrators to keep doing. During the pandemic, there were a lot of eyes that were open to the fact that like the haves and have nots are real and not every student's situation at home looks what my situation looks like. So there were kids that we were teaching who didn't have 
that like didn't have Wi-Fi. They didn't have any internet because it was like where they lived, they weren't supported out there with internet. They didn't have it. And so principals had to keep that in mind as they moved forward. So I encourage them a lot to like keep equity in mind. Um, keep in mind that teachers have trauma. Some students have trauma and, you know, they're working through that, but they still have to come to school and kind of work through that as well. And so um, there's just, you know, there's a lot that I encourage administrators to keep doing. A lot of it is keep doing the great work that you already are doing. And if there's things like, like taking away recess or, or using writing as punishment, right? Oh, you did this. So now you have to write a hundred lines of, I will not talk back to the teacher. I will not talk back to the teacher. Right. I'm like, that's, that's hurting a love of writing. Like, let's stop that practice. So there are some things that I do encourage to keep doing. And then some things I encourage to stop doing as well. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Elijah. So <clears throat> as you know, uh, successful people stay on top of their productivity, but this means different things for different people. Mm -hmm. So how does Elijah get organized to ensure that he does all this stuff and still have a fructiferous life? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really glad you asked this question because it's something that I've thought about a lot this year, actually. Um, when it comes to boundaries. So I recently read a book called Teach and Still Have Time to Pee. And it's written by uh, an author, educator named Jamie Johnson, who phenomenal, phenomenal lady, you know, I just love her and, and I love the book itself. Um, but it really talked about setting boundaries for ourselves, you know, and she said, think about using the restroom, going to use the restroom is one of the most basic forms of self-care. And teachers often work so much to the point where it's like, I went the entire day and didn't go to the bathroom once. And, um, and that's not, that's not healthy, right? That's not healthy for our bodies. That's not healthy for our, for our emotions and our mind. And so I've started to look at my own life and say, okay, where are, where's the boundary that I need to set? And what is it that I need to do? How do I need to organize myself so that this boundary stays firm? So, I left a school where I was bringing a lot of work home. I, I was bringing work home. I was getting to work early. I was staying late. And it was, it just became so stressful and so much that I said, that's it. That's the boundary. And so, excuse me. I said, uh, I said, I'm not, I'm first of all, I'm not bringing any work home. If it, if it doesn't get done, it, it will get done tomorrow. First thing in the morning, because it's not going to grow legs and walk away. The work will still be there in the morning. And, um, so that was one thing just like, nope, I am, I'm not bringing work home, but I had to do some other things to make sure I wouldn't have to bring work home. So setting boundaries means, you know what, this is my prep time and I'm sorry, but it's my prep time. I, I, it's an uninterrupted prep time. I need this to get ready for, for the next week, for the next few days, whatever, so that I can go home when it's time to go home. I don't want to have to stay late here. Right. I'm not going to I'm not going to work myself into an early grave, you know, doing this, you know, it's it's for the kids, but I'm still a person, too. And so I need that time to get home. You know, it takes me about 20 minutes or so to get home in the afternoon. And I want to get home so I can listen to music, play music, write poetry, spend time debriefing with my wife, you know, asking how her day was and listening to her. Um 
watching i mean i you know i just want to relax you know at the end of the day i need to decompress and do what's what's best for me to recharge and i wasn't able to do that at the at this other school that i was at where i was having forced forced to bring work home and and you know get there early and all that and so it was just that boundary that i said you know what like if i expect to get things done i there are some hard boundaries i need to set so sorry don't interrupt my prep time unless it's an absolute emergency and and it's it's happened you know there's been some cases where i've had to you know it's been interrupted but it's okay like i understand the situation but um and i'm not a jerk about it you know i'm i'm not like in everybody's face like it's my prep time you know but it's just like hey this is you know if at all possible please don't interrupt cuz i'm you know i'm trying to stay productive myself and keeping myself accountable of like this is my time don't go off and talk to people you know don't go you know sh you know don't go off talking and you know just all that in the teacher's lounge you know like sit down like get you you know focus you know and so that's that's been a huge help to me is just setting that boundary of like this is my time to plan and be productive and so i'm going to use that time to plan and be productive beautiful i mean uh, the physician doesn't work when they are not on call so mm. that is that is a great way to 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 say it so um Elijah, uh, tell us about uh, how do you organize uh, your days or your weeks? So I, first of all, I live by my Google calendar, <laughs> live and die by my Google calendar these days. Um, if there's something I know that has to happen, it goes in at least as a reminder. Um, and so I definitely have utilized that this year to keep myself organized. Um, with the podcast, you know, that I host, I started using uh, an app called Calendly to um, organize my my uh, scheduled conversations with other in, with other educators, which has really, really helped me um, stay on top of my like the side hustle of the podcasting thing and has really helped with the productivity of that. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I mean, I had to find a system that worked for me. You know, not everybody's going to be the same. I see some people that write in a calendar, you know, some people write and it goes into a Google calendar. I'm, I, it's easier for me because I have my phone here. You know, I, I can just type it in. It sounds an alarm, you know, all that. And so um, putting things into, into a system that works for me is what helped. And so, so putting it into my Google calendar helps me kind of organize my day, but um You know, so when I get up, that's kind of the first thing I do, you know, when I, you know, first thing I do when I have my phone anyway is, is you know, I'll look through the calendar and see, okay, what, what do I have on for today? And usually at least what's for today and what's for tomorrow. So I'm at least sort of mindful about tomorrow. And so I kind of scroll through those and kind of look through and, you know, make my plan for the day, you know, make sure that, you know, everything's set. Um not every time but a lot of times before i leave i'll check the calendar you know one more time before i leave just to make sure that my room is you know set up or that i have everything ready for the next day it's just about you know just i think just being proactive with it you know i don't want to i don't want to share you know you mentioned it everybody has their own way so i'm just sharing one way this isn't elijah's way or the highway it's just this is what elijah does and so i love my google calendar I do. I absolutely love my Google Calendar. I love Calendly, um, you know, for scheduling events and, you know, keeping me on top of it. And, you know, all those nice little bing, bing, bing reminders, you know, really helps keep me on it. So absolutely. Uh, Elijah, can you walk us through your process of lesson or unit planning? 
Yes. Yeah, so lesson planning. Let me let me go through that one there. So and unit planning. So as a reading interventionist, I service um, I service students in in the MTSS or MLSS uh, uh, system. And so I, you know, work with students, you know, to, to find that, first of all, we give some diagnostics. There's some simple things that we do. Um, we are letters trained, uh, L-T-R-S letters, or L-E-T-R-S letters, um, going through the science of reading, you know, making sure we understand all aspects of literacy and language development and all that. And then there's an assessment we give to kind of pinpoint exactly where students are at in their reading. So it, this diagnostic is really beautiful because it tells us very specific information. They know all of their alphabet. They know all their letter sounds, but they're working on building CVC. They're working to read CVC words or they know all those things, but they that right now what they need to work on is vowel, consonant, E syllables. And so it's very, very specific in in what it tells us where they're at. So from there, once I know, okay, so I, in fact, I just did this, so this is a great question uh, that you ask because it's fresh in my mind. I just did all the, the new MLSS plans were updated just yesterday. Um, and so I you know, sat down to look at most recent data. I always start with that. You know, it's not an opinion. You know, I have to look at the hard data to see this is what their skills are. This is their strengths. This is where we're going next. And um, and I like to word it that way to my students. It's not what you need to work on. It's where we're going next, right? This is where we're going. We're just on a journey and this is the next stop along the way. And so from there, I can plan specifically. We've done a lot of work to pinpoint, hey, if your kids are working on uh, digraphs, this is the unit. This is the le this. These are the weeks that you teach that. And so that's teachers really know how to go back and find without any trouble, without taking a long time of digging through the book and the curriculum. It's, Hey, it's in this unit and this week, go back. And this is, these are the lessons that you can use. Here's the intervention. If you need more suggestions, come meet with us. So we really, really utilize data. We really utilize data to help us get started with it and then help us pinpoint what we need to teach. So when I sit down, I, I kind of look it over and I say, okay, we're working on, so, so my kids now are working on doubles, the, the bonus letters, like words like puff with two Fs, right? And so I kind of plan out, okay, like look through, like kind of look through my curriculum, kind of pinpoint, okay, what do my kids need specifically from here? Is there something in the lesson that is important that definitely needs to be in there? Is there something for the sake of time that I can take out and substitute with a different um, component in there? But a lot of it adapts, the lesson planning adapts as I go. So I can make all these plans, but again, as teachers, we have to be reflective in that too. So I can go through and look at the data. I can go through and look at the curriculum, get my plan in place, right? And I, I can have a plan of for this week. And I usually plan it about a week at a time of this is these are my lessons that i'm going to teach and this is a progression of how it's going to go um these are materials that i'm going to use so i i in my lesson plan i mark out you know it's, and it's not lengthy college five page lesson plans you know it's a short template i'm making notes you know to myself you know just a lot of it sometimes is handwritten too because it's just the way i work you know this is the way my brain works 
And so, but I've marked everything that I need, what the students need, what I need to really make sure that I'm prepared in the moment, right? And so that I'm not, you know, oh shoot, I forgot what you needed or, oh, I forgot to put this up on the board or, you know, it's just so that I'm prepared, right? It's part of part of best practice in being prepared as a, as a teacher. But sometimes those plans change. So as I was teaching recently, I was teaching my students about digraphs, but I kept like, something's off here. And I kept like asking and I kept, and then I finally noticed it. And they were getting confused between the I and the E, short sounds. So mm. eh and I. And so from there, now I can pinpoint that's more data, right? It's not hardcore data, but I, I've heard it, I've seen it. So I know like, okay, now I can adjust. So now my lessons are just going to have letters that or words that have those vowels in them, because I know, you know, the other vowels well, but these two you're getting mixed up. So we're going to talk about them specifically while still talking about the digraph. So the lesson can change kind of at any moment, you know, based on the student's needs, but it takes being attentive and, and being aware of those needs and being engaged with the students. Because if I just sit back and here's the lesson, there's no engagement on my end to know whether or not they're struggling with vowels I and E or with digraph CK, you know, when do I use CK instead of K, you know? So it really takes me being engaged in that as well. So being engaged, being attentive to their needs helps me kind of plan as I go along as well, because I might plan four, four or five lessons, but after that first day, I might realize this has got to go in a different direction. So let me see what I have. And based on what I know now, let me tweak that. Wow, thank you for sharing that. You know, often we don't talk about the process of developing uh, lesson and unit plans. Uh, so it's, it's awesome to hear from you. There's also a lot of collaboration that goes into that planning too. Um, you know, as a reading interventionist, I work with um, three grades currently, first, third, and fifth. And so there's collaboration that happens between those teachers and I too. You know, it's not just I'm planning all on my own because it's their student, you know, it's their their homeroom student and they come to me. But I want to make sure that we're all on the same page because they might see something. They might have information about them that I don't have because they see them for a full day, yeah. whereas I see them for 30 minutes. Mm. So they might have some more information of, hey, just so you know, I noticed this about little Johnny and his reading the other day when we were doing math, you know, reading a math word problem. I noticed this. You know, and so they can share that with me to say, okay, now I can take that back for reading intervention. So collaboration is a big part of the of the planning process too. That's great. And so uh, I'm sure you implement a lot of social skills because teachers come in all shapes and sizes and, and moods. Um, what have you learned about collaborating with others? Collaborating with others is not always easy. Um, and sometimes can be messy, right? Sometimes it can look a little messy, but I've also learned that, you know, if both or all of, if all parties collaborating together have the kids in mind, if they are mm. kid centered and kid focused, then the collaboration really takes, the, the collaboration that takes place becomes really beneficial and valuable. Because if it's just, what can I do to make this easier for me? Or what can we do to get a, quick answers so that this collaboration meeting is over. 
-hmm. right? That doesn't benefit the student. Schools are built for students. They're not built for the adults. And so the collaboration and the lesson planning and, and the reflection, all that, all that we do goes into benefiting student achievement and, and out best outcomes for students. So I think collaboration really works if both parties that are collaborating together have that, if they're student focused and student minded first before what's easiest and what's best for me. Amen. So um, um, I know I'm asking you a lot of questions. Is that I find you uh, quite a fascinating figure. Uh, when you were writing your book, what are the lessons you have learned about the actual process of compiling all your ideas into a book and what recommendations you have for those who are aspiring to write their own book? So for those that are really, well, I'll start, I'll start with lessons. I'll start with lessons because that's what you asked first. So I learned, I learned about my own process you know, because I hadn't written anything on this scale before, you know, ever, you know, I've never written anything on this size before. And um, so I learned a lot about my own process and how I process things and my own way of reflecting on things before I write. You know, I, there was a lot of moments where it was like, right, right, right. And it was, a, it felt like, I just call it barfing on the page where it's just like, let me just get everything out. And then I wouldn't touch it again for like a day. I'd let it sit for like a day. And then go back and look at it and be like, okay, I can take this out. Okay, I can reword this. Okay, the rest of it is fine. Um, so in that, I just learned about my process as a as a writer, as a human being. I just learned about myself, you know, and and what works for me, and you know, all that. And so I think it's important. My advice for anyone who's working on that is really find your own process because I can tell you what works for me. I can tell you what works for me, but it may not work for you, Dr. Efrain, right? It may not work for you. And what you do may not work for the teacher in your, in your building down the hall from you. And so I, in anyone doing that, as you're compiling these things, lean into your process and be reflective on what your process is. Now, there are some things like I, I highly suggest blogging. If that's, that's a great way to start, you know, it's a great way to just practice getting it out there so that the public can read it. Um, it, I had a, I had a thought and then I lost it. So, uh, but just get, you know, just getting it out there, you know, in, in blog format and, and then really start to notice themes. You know, I've been chatting with somebody who is actually considering writing a book and I just have been encouraging her, you know, look for the themes, look for those common themes within there, or, you know, have that theme in mind because that's, what's going to drive you, you know, Develop your message first. Develop the heart of it first before you start building the rest of it. I look at it as like a body. I look at it as like a body. And I always start with like the heartbeat. Like what is the heart of the book? Where's the, and then like, what's the research, right? That's the brain. What's the research? What's the common, like, how does this work? How do we apply it and all that? And then from there, the rest is all detail right? The rest is detail and examples and all that. And you can build the rest of the skeleton and, and all that from there. But I always start with the heart, the heart of the book. And so um, the heart or your message, the heart of your message. So that, that would be my encouragement is find your message and find your process. Beautiful. Thank you. And finally, can you tell us about your podcast? How did you come up with the idea and uh, what lessons have you learned? 
so the yeah thank you my podcast is called the shut up and teach podcast and um that's uh there's there's a chapter in my book called shut up and teach people ask me for a long time is the title of your book shut up and teach and i just tell them no it's just the title of a chapter in my book um so that i can i can explain that really briefly but it's really just it's not meant to be anything negative it's really a call to an encourage it's really an encouragement of hey i know that we've done this before in the past but we can do better you know i know this worked for your students last year but we can step it up right i know that what you're facing right now is real and i'm not negating that that you know what's going on but it's time to leave the negativity at the door because it's time to teach right you can deal with your problem and i'll help you with your problem but right now it's time to teach and so that's what shut up and teach is all about it's not, it's not toxic positivity it's not ignore your problems it's it's really just hey right now in this moment i need to be here for my students and so yes that problem i'm facing is real but i'm going to leave it in the car i'm going to leave it in the car and when i'm done with the day i'll deal with it then um it's the call to step up our game right i know that you know yes it's easy enough to pass out a worksheet but I can give them an engaging lesson. So I'm going to shut up and teach an engaging lesson instead of a worksheet. So that's kind of the mindset behind shut up and teach. Um, you know, some of the lessons that I've learned, you know, through podcasting, again, is just more self-reflection. You know, it started off, that was my transition from blogging into podcasting. I don't blog as much as I used to because the podcasting took over it became my reflection, you know, it became my reflection and it also became my connection. So I've been able to connect with a lot of phenomenal educators. Um, and the podcast has grown a lot this year. So I've begun to connect with even more. So, you know, this, I've just learned the, the power of connection with others, right? I've learned the power of reflecting, you know, continuing to reflect on our practice and having a way to go back and listen to it so that it's not just, oh, I reflected on it. And then the next day I forgot, but it's like, oh, I can go back to that. I remember one time I had this moment. I can go back to the podcast that I recorded about that and listen to what I actually said. So now I'm becoming like my own, you know, my own hype man, you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, in all seriousness, or not just my podcast, but hey, I remember I talked to, you know, I talked to Jed Derryberry about that, or I talked to, uh, you know, Mickey Smith Jr. And I'm gonna, you know, go back and listen to what they had to say. And so it's really been a way for me to grow professionally by reflecting and connecting. Awesome. Awesome. Now, uh, uh, before we leave, uh, I'm very curious. When I saw you in person, I, I saw your beautiful artwork with tattoos. Um, mm -hmm. I have some tattoos myself. And I remember when I started looking for jobs, I will, I will cover them and I will even hold my shirt like this. So terrified and afraid, man. But times have changed. Mm -hmm. uh, can you share with us uh, your experience uh, with uh, the art in your, in your body? The art on my body. I love that. I'm going to start calling it the art on my body. I love that. Cause, cause it is, you know, you don't think about that. You know, we, I, I definitely didn't think about that before I had tattoos. I didn't think of it as art. It was just, it's a tattoo, but when you really start looking at the work that they do, it is, it is so difficult and challenging to, to draw in general, but to draw on someone's skin with neat. And it's just like, Oh my gosh, I don't know how they do it. Um, but I'm thankful for it because I love it. And, um, so yeah, my, my tattoos, you know, I've, I don't, 
I don't know how many pieces I have. I think it's like 13 or so. And I, I want to get more for sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, yeah, once got, you start, you cannot stop. Absolutely. You can't stop. Yeah, I know it's, it's tough. And, but you know, I don't, I don't pay for art necessarily on my wall. I pay for it on my body, you know, and, and that's kind of the way I look at it. Um, but that first tattoo I got, just like you nervous, just like, Oh my gosh. Like the minute they find out they're going to freak out. Um, and nobody did, you know? And, and so I, you know, it's always been kind of, I just kind of keep it to myself. I don't make a big deal out of it, you know, and, and nobody else has made a real big deal out of it. But what I have found is having tattoos, like I've got tattoos on my hands, I've got tattoos on my legs you know, on my, on my arms and my chest and all that. And so having visible tattoos is powerful. It's powerful because there are at my school, there are a lot of parents who have visible tattoos who drop off their kids. Right. And they see someone who it's like, Oh, that dude kind of looks like me. He represents me and my culture. He gets it. He's one of us. And so having visible tattoos connects people together just because it's like hey tattoos yeah tattoos but then also the tattoos tell a story you know when people sit down to start asking like hey tell me like tell me about your puzzle piece right tell me about your you know let's see what else i got on here i got the i got the light bulb with the rose in it you know tell me about some of those or tell me about your hands or something it just opens doors for conversation and more connection you know it just opens that up and so i've been able to connect with a lot of parents who, you know, are covered in tattoos, you know, and, and all this stuff and other teachers who have tattoos and then students who are like, you have a lot of tattoos. And I'm like, yes, I do. And then we get on these conversations about tattoo etiquette and what's it like to, you know, the feel of it and, you know, thinking about tattoo placements and all that. And I always tell my kids, you know, hey, you, cause they, they go off and they're like, oh, I want a hand tattoo and I want this. And I'm like, well, just, you know, you got to think about it because not everyone is cool with it. You just got to think about that. So take your time. Don't make any, you know, don't make any big decisions. Now you're only in the fourth grade, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, things will change as you get older and for sure. But, but it's, I love tattoos. You know, they, they tell a story, at least in my case they do. And um, it just creates more opportunities for connection. And I, and I love it. I love connecting with people through that. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that personal story. Uh, Elijah, this has been such a great uh, moment uh, spending learning from you. Uh, any last thoughts you would like to share with the listeners and viewers of the show? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you again, uh, Dr. Martinez, for just having me on the show. This has been a great conversation, and I've really appreciated our time together. And uh, just for our listeners, just thank you, you know, for, for joining us. And thank you for coming back to, uh, you know, Dr. Efrain's uh, podcast, you know, continuously. It's a great show. And, you know, I'm one that I'm proud to listen to and proud to be part of as, uh, on this time as well. So, um, yeah, if you, you know, I'm easy to get in contact with. If you all want to, if anyone listening wants to, you know, get connected with me, my, my handle's there on the screen and, and all that. So, yeah. I'm just happy to connect. Like, let's connect. Beautiful. Uh, absolutely connect with Elijah. I'm sure that there's going to be more books coming up. Uh, I wish you the best of success as Elijah and have a fantastic Saturday. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Wisdom and Productivity. 
the podcast of Dr. Ebrahim Martinez. Chulu. And Ella, the production. Chulu out.